Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is U.S. Women's National Team star Katerina Macario, who I interviewed today in Doha. Before we get going, you can subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. I am in Qatar doing daily coverage of World Cup 22 for the duration, even though the U.S. is out now. I will be here through the final on December 18th. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, Chris? I am. Uh, I'm. I will admit, I'm. I'm pretty crestfallen. I am pretty sad that uh, the U.S. didn't have a moment that I thought was on the cards for them today. Um, I, I discussed this with uh, with Mike Ryan on our morally abhorrent World Cup show, uh, where we were talking like the U.S. has sort of now hit this exact point in their last three World Cups that they participated in. It's the exact same result: one win out in the round of sixteen. It's the same result every time, and. I thought that the U.S. had a, had a chance today to really take that next big step up, beat a traditional footballing nation at their own game, and there were moments to do so, and they didn't take advantage of them, and and I was made sad by that. That all makes total sense. I get it. Uh, the aspirations were there today, and Pulisic gets a, a great chance in on goal three minutes in. Um that I thought in real time was must have been offside. So I, I almost was looking at it in a different way than if I had known that it was onside, which it actually was because he was being played on by a guy on the left. Um, but Pulisic could have taken it better. Um, Noppert, the, uh, the Dutch goalkeeper, did a good job with it. And I, I, I really thought that could have given the U.S. something tangible for what I thought was... Um, greater, a bit greater control um, in the first half. You know, I wasn't expecting the U.S. to have such a significant possession advantage, but they didn't do that much with all that possession. Didn't create a lot of chances. And the fact is that the the Dutch goals, the first one and the second one, very similar looking goals. And I, I didn't talk to Louis van Hall after the game to see if the Dutch had identified that as a weakness in the U.S. where there was space available in the box if you did a cutback. He did. Back. He did. He did. It, it, it's, it's, it's been a quote that's gone around social media, particularly for uh, the fans that have been very against Greg Berhalter throughout this <laughs> tournament. He said, uh, and I quote, the U.S. did not adjust. They did not adapt to the game, and they identified the flanks as an area that they wanted to attack. And when you have a player like Denzel Dumfries uh, attacking that flank, uh, he is going to take advantage. And that was ultimately the U.S.'s undoing. Yeah, I mean, I should say also, every team identifies potential weaknesses in their opponents. And so ahead of the Wales game, the first game of the tournament, the U.S. had, had identified the same cutback pass to Eunice Musa late entering the box and looked for it. Got it once or twice. Um, and so, like, this isn't something that just Louis van Hal does, and yet it was clearly available, and it was frankly shocking that all three goals that the Netherlands scored, the score was wide open in the box. Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. you just can't do that. Yeah, I mean, weak side defending in this game was pretty poor, and I think it, it comes from a, from a variety of, of areas. I think for the first one, it was the U.S., trying to be aggressive and press in the way that they have done against other opponents. And you just see, in some ways, uh, I, I was talking with a, with a colleague of mine who I work with at Inter Miami, and it was uh, I, I would describe it as heritage. It was the word that uh, Jose Mourinho sort of has mockingly <laughs> used in the past. Like, this is heritage. But, I mean, it, it is the Dutch heritage of a team that gr grows up and a country and a style of play that everyone is sort of imbued with it. Not just like you are coached to do this, but you believe it sort of in your bones and you feel like this is part of who I am as a, as a footballer is I play with the ball under pressure. And you saw it all starts Frankie de Jong in his own area. He carries the ball and you're, so you're watching it going, what is he doing? And then as the ball gets moved up the pitch, it's like, oh, he was trying to get the American defenders disorganized, chasing him because he seemed like a player that was vulnerable in that moment, but he always knew what that next pass was going to be. And then as the pass, the passes connect 
Uh, I saw today uh, that uh, there's a stat that it was a 20 pass move, which is the most that there the, the most number of passes for a move for a World Cup knockout round goal in like 50 years or something like that. And you see the progression from back to front, and the U.S. is going and they're going and they're going, but they just never got there. And then that leads to vulnerabilities. Dumfries gets in that pullback position that he's so prolific in, and there's that space in the middle that is created because. Adams and Musa went for it going forward. They tracked back, and that's kind of the gap in between the middle line and the defensive line. It's wide open for someone to run into. Memphis Depay does, finishes with a plum, and it's 1-0. And the second goal was pretty similar in terms of there's that gap in between the middle and the back line. Why is there that gap? Uh, and and where was the midfield in that moment? I have to go back and, and analyze that goal more. And then as the game goes on, uh, you're sort of committing more numbers forward. Robinson and Ream failed to communicate on the third goal. And again, weak side, Dumfries is wide open. He has a goal and two assists because either, you know, the fullbacks didn't cover. I know Dest didn't do well in the second uh, or you lose responsibilities or you don't win the ball higher up the pitch. And ultimately, it, it leaves you vulnerable on the weak side. And the Netherlands took advantage. And in some ways, it, it's their tactical advantage by playing a different system than the U.S. The wingback system was the system to take advantage of this team. Wales just didn't weren't progressive enough to find those gaps. A tired U.S. team against this Netherlands team in the shape that they were playing in were able to take advantage of those gaps. No, they're all great points. I mean, I thought it was interesting in our post-game interviews of the players, not one of the U.S. players wanted to admit that they were tired in this game. But that's one of those situations where I understand in their position why they don't want to say that and they don't want to say what they think are excuses. But that's one of those things that if you're observing this game as a journalist, you see it with your own eyes. And it was pretty apparent. And even Tyler Adams, who never seems to get tired, you know, like it, it, it kind of makes sense as you explained it a second ago that he would get in trouble on that first goal from over-pressuring, right? Because that's who Tyler yeah. Adams is every day of the year at Leeds United, and that's who he is as well with the United States team. And so being drawn into that by what the Dutch were doing and then being in a position where, oh, I've got to track back very, very quickly, and he didn't do it. And he also lost Memphis. Mm -hmm. And that's rare for Tyler Adams to do. He's had a fantastic tournament. I still think he's been the, the best U.S. player in the tournament. But best players make mistakes occasionally. That was a pretty significant one. Yunus Musa did not cover when it happened, which, you know, you would have loved for him to do that, but he's just turned 20 years old. And so maybe at World Cup 26, if that same situation arises, it's handled differently by players with more experience. Yes, and and I think as well, you, I think my my personal pick out of failures of Greg Berhalter in this tournament. I I don't have too many complaints. I think he has generally done a very good job. I I don't think it can be sort of oversold how different the shape of this game is to normal U.S. knockout round games against superior opposition. Like the idea that the U.S. would go into a game just as they did against England and say we want to go toe to toe with you and at times have more of the ball. And the Netherlands even identifying that wanting to pick out the pick off the US, the US on the counter was going to be a way to beat them and let let them have the ball. We'll we'll pick them off in some ways is a, is an endorsement of I think the US implementing a style of play that worked at this tournament, but for me the failure and and we can talk about the Ferreira situation as well is players who you might have needed in big moments weren't sharp enough because he didn't give enough time to substitutes over the course of this tournament. And while we talked about the notion of there being less travel and you know there, a, a more time in between games than there was during qualifying, that doesn't mean that you don't use your squad. Greg Berhalter didn't really use his squad at this World Cup very much. Um, nine, and I, nine, and I players, nine players started all four games. And right. to me, that is what led in part to the fatigue tonight. Correct. And so I think Brendan Aronson should have started a game in the group stage for the sake of it. Yeah. Uh, Gio Reyna should have started a game in the group stage for the sake of it. Even if you are firmly in the belief that McKenny Moose and Adams is your best midfield. And honestly, I agree with Greg Berhalter. That is the case. You don't start one of them in one of the games because you just need your best players in these sorts of games. 
I also think, and and you know, I, I think you, that that point sort of goes even deeper. The notion that you know they didn't have a left back that they trusted. Anthony Robinson was picked on again and again. You wish you had a left back that you could have played in one of the games. I mean, in 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 theory, that's a position where you can make a change, but they just didn't have one. And they brought Joe Scally to sort of be that makeshift, and they didn't use him. And so you have Anthony Robinson out there for 360 minutes, and he just looked dead. And so you have that in concert with, I think, a team that struggles to adjust when they bring in new players. That like the style is sort of specifically catered to the 11 best players. And so you have sort of this this team that is over-reliant upon its best group of guys instead of trying to figure out ways to incorporate others. That way, you're not just completely running your players into the ground over the course of the group stage. And I think as well, you see the difference between the Netherlands that go in thinking about getting to the quarterfinals, the semis, and the final, and the U.S. where you are giving absolutely everything from minute one. And it's not a ramp up into the tournament. It's fly into the tournament. We got to win this first game. We got to give everything in this first game because the group stage is everything. The biggest teams, the best teams... Give don't give everything in the group stage. They realize that the tournament is a build. And I think that's sort of the uh, genius or privilege, really, of the incumbency of the footballing giants in the world is they don't really have to care that much about the group stage because you have that level of confidence you're going to get through. Whereas for the, a team like the U.S., you have to give everything in the group stage, and that leaves you pretty knackered come the knockout rounds. I hear a lot of what you're saying. I, I would say Germany, Uruguay... Um maybe even to an extent Mexico might disagree with you on that's fair on not you know giving everything during the group stage there are some very good teams Belgium they got eliminated let's let's include Belgium instead of Mexico how about that um, <laughs> like some, there are some very good teams that got eliminated in the group stage here or at least teams that we've seen be good in the past Belgium was not a very good team <laughs> they deserve mm-hmm. to be eliminated um, yeah I, I just think that there are teams that have another gear to get to. And I think, you know, England left themselves another gear to get to. And clearly the Netherlands did. And I I read Matt Doyle's column after the game. He said that wasn't by design. That was just they played poorly in the group stage. And maybe they found something different today. But either way, I think these these big nations don't necessarily have to go 100 percent all the way out in the group stage. And, you know, a team like France and Brazil can make changes. And look, maybe that mentality is part of the reason why the Germany went out. And they they're sort of like, yeah, you know, we we got it covered against Japan. Everything's fine. We're good. And then next, you know, you're behind two one. So that privilege can sometimes be arrogance. But I don't know, man, I, I just see I see the U.S give absolutely everything and it sort of left them with nothing here they they could have re- if they got to the quarterfinal they could have really done with the amount of rest in between saturday and friday and maybe had a couple more days off to sort of recharge but yeah i i, I agree with you i think in the state on television to me in periods in that first half you just see the the drop off in intensity and if it's from 100 percent to 90 percent, that's the difference between winning and losing against the netherlands now the u.s gives up a goal i think it was 10th minute Mm-hmm. And there's a frustration with that because the U.S. had actually had almost one-way traffic until that point, um, less so the rest of the first half. But then you feel like you're taking a one-nil lead into halftime, and you give up a fairly crushing goal right before halftime off a throw-in. Where, I'm frankly, I'm still surprised Daly Blind plays for the national team of the Netherlands. And it was, you know, it was a nice goal. You know, very similar to the first one, as we mentioned. Dest could have done better tracking. Um, but you almost felt it almost felt like it was worth two goals instead of one, yeah. given the the timing of it and the deflation the US had entering the tunnel for halftime. It's just such a killer. Such a killer because you're you're thinking about the adjustments that you can make and the adjustment that they did eventually make in bringing Reyna on for Ferreira and you just sort of like would have loved to have got into the halftime locker room to talk about the things that were sort of the post game story. And and I read a good piece in Backheeled uh, about you know the tactics that the Netherlands employed, particularly in the midfield, sort of man marking both man marking came all, up, all, yeah. All, right, yeah, all three of McKenny, Musa, and Adams to try and negate the combination play between the middle, and then you try and find the solutions out wide. I thought Sergio Desk grew into the game as the first half went on, and and you sort of realize, oh, we gotta we gotta play in wide areas, we gotta get the ball out there because that's where the space is and that's where the Netherlands sort of want you to play. And so 
you could have gone in at halftime and said, all right, you know, we're, let's let's move this around. If they're going to do this to our midfield, then we can adjust and do this. It's kind of tough to to sort of do that stuff from the technical area and do it on the fly. But you would have loved the U.S. to get a chance to get in the locker room and figure out what they're going to do and change in the second half. And then at that point, you're just in, in desperation mode. It's heave everything forward, go, 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 go. And and it's it's a it's sort of a vibes game at that point. It's not even really a tactical battle. And that's the difference between going into half 1-0 and 2-0 down. If it's 1-0 at half, you say, look, guys, we really liked how we played for large stretches. The Netherlands aren't creating much. They're not that threatening. They took advantage of their one chance. That one chance is a fluke. We got this. And, this. and the second just sort of is an indication of, oh, they're better than us. Like the yeah. individually, individually, they have better players. And you sort of go in pretty defeated. It's kind of bizarre that one goal can do that because the remaining 45 minutes and 45 seconds still happened. But it's so crushing to go in at half having had that happen because it sort of tells a larger narrative, not just sort of is that one isolated moment. Correct. And I do think that if it had been one nil at halftime, we would probably not have seen Gio Reyna come on to start the second half for Ferreira. That's my guess. I think it would have been slightly later, Um, but we did. And that does bring up a question about Reyna and about Ferreira and about Burhalter's choices here. He has, you know, we've talked about this the entire tournament. So this is, didn't just develop today. You know, I, I went back and looked. Gio Reyna started three of Dortmund's six Champions League group stage games at a much higher level than the World Cup, by the way. And so you see that, and then you see he's not starting here in any game, not starting today in a World Cup knockout game. And and Jesus Ferreira is, and this is no disrespect to Jesus Ferreira, who I think is a, a very promising player and is going to have a long and productive career, most likely in Europe when these U.S. fans will th- will decide he's good because he plays in Europe. Um, <laughs> and, and so this is not about Jesus Ferreira. But it, if you have a player in Gio Reyna who is starting – Dortmund Champions League games on a regular basis as a, an important attacking threat for that club, and you don't use him in a World Cup knockout game, or you don't start him at least, and you use him for seven minutes over the first three games of the World Cup, there's just something amiss. And I've had a couple of people text me today saying he's not fit. We never were told that. In fact, we were told something different, which is that he is fit by him, by U.S. Soccer, by Greg Berhalter. I don't understand why you wouldn't say he's not fit. You know, you talked about Josh Sargent being not fit after the last game. Um, And so you can only go on what they say, which is he is fit. And he comes on for 45 minutes tonight. So if he wasn't fit, he probably wouldn't have brought him on to start the second half. It becomes all a little silly, actually. But if you're willing to bring Rain on for Ferrer in that situation... I realize Reyna can't play probably a full 90 minutes. Even if he was 100% perfect, he probably couldn't play a whole, in that position, 90 minutes or 120 for that matter. And so it's not about that. You've got five subs. So why not start him in this game if you're going to bring him on in that situation? Like you only bring him on when you're in desperation mode needing in a two-goal hole. I, I just It does not fully compute. And I know Greg Berhalter, if we had him on the show right now, would probably argue that Jesus Ferreira brings a lot more energy on the defensive side and is a uh, a, a center forward in the Burhalter system mode, maybe in a way that Reyna isn't, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe I'm wrong here. We don't have great Burhalter to explain. I'm just trying to think of what he might say. And... And yet there's such um, a drop-off between the Giorena possibilities right now and and Jesus Ferreira from the attacking side, which Berhalter acknowledged by bringing him on when they needed goals in the second half. So I just don't think, I, I understand Giorena is not a big defense guy, but this is the center forward position. These are your attacking positions. And I, I feel like the balance was off kilter a little bit um, in this tournament. Agreed. I, I do think that the, the modern game does emphasize more the defensive abilities of forwards. And so I, I do think 
that Josh Sargent in particular played a pretty valuable role defensively for the U.S. Um, that being said, I don't think Jesus Ferreira really brought that today. Like I didn't, I didn't watch him defensively and go, "Wow, that was a really impressive." He, he put an effort, but I, I think the U.S.'s ability to win the ball back off of the Netherlands was in some ways their own self-inflicted issues, and also just I think th- this system is pretty good at collectively winning the ball back. That being said, it was interesting on a couple of accounts. One, like I said, I I think if you're going to insist upon a center forward, it has to be right. Because Wright has at least started a game. He's at least come off, come off the bench and played significant minutes. I think it's a pretty difficult ask to ask Jesus Ferreira. You haven't played at this World Cup. Correct. You haven't played a competitive game since mid-October. Go out there and show us what you got against a pretty impossibly difficult back three in Timber, Van Dyke, and Ake, who have been pretty good at this tournament. So you're putting him, you're, you're, your job as a manager is to put your players in a, in a position to succeed. And I just don't think he did for Jesus Ferreira there. And I think it's pretty harsh on him that he is now going to be sort of remembered in a U.S. shirt as having put in this particular display. Because I don't think it's emblematic of who he is as a player. Like you said, I think he is an immensely talented prospect who's got a genuine future, got the call to be a rare homegrown designated player in MLS, and then followed it up with a great season for FC Dallas. Like he is a genuinely good prospect, but he was not put in a position to succeed today. And he was awful. Like, I, I just, I, I don't think you can sort of equivocate about that. He was terrible. His first touches were awful. Wasn't really getting involved. It, he was dropping further and further back to help the play and help alleviate the issues with the, with the man marking in midfield. But, wasn't in, wasn't in threatening positions. When they got into threatening positions, he didn't help the play carry on. At least with Wright, you had sort of a, a, a way of playing. As it relates to Reyna, I do think that in bringing on Wright 15 minutes in the second half, it was kind of an acknowledgement that, that that wasn't really working either. And Reyna wasn't playing very well, which again, it, it's hard to separate the overall context, right? Giovanni Reyna has played seven minutes in this group stage. He's played, he's gone a little while now without playing a competitive game. You wish he had played 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes yeah. in the group stage so that when it's come when it comes time for him to make an impact, he's sharp. I think there was a lack of sharpness from the US substitutions because they weren't relied upon enough. They and and that is the very fine balance you have to find at a World Cup. You've got to make a couple changes and, and you have to make difficult decisions to leave difficult to, to leave impactful players off the bench, but it's more important that more of your squad is activated and ready to go so that when you try and make a change like that, it's not just a desperation heave and you're putting together a new system in 15 minutes. It's you actually have an idea of how you're going to approach it. There is also the question of whether or not you even play Reyna in that position or you move way over. I was looking over his last year of club play and he's played center forward some for Lille and it might not be center forward in the exact way that the U.S. asked center forwards to play, but at the very least, he's more comfortable work, working in that area, and you you can move uh, Reyna over to the wing. You can even move him into the central midfield and, and take McKenney off or something like that. You can do other things other than put Reyna in that position because it was pretty clear that he was not going to make an impact from that specific area. And so I think in the overall, you're, you're trying to figure out how to best use that group of players, and Ferreira from the start was just the wrong call. And I think he acknowledged that by pulling him off at halftime. And that, for me, in terms of in-game adjustments or in-game coaching, is the biggest failure of of, of his World Cup so far, or will have been the biggest World Cup failure uh, for him because it just didn't work. It was a it was a mistake. Let's talk about Haji Wright's goal. Uh, he gets credit for the goal. It was good work by Pulisic. And yeah, I wouldn't even call what Haji Wright did a shot. It deflected. It was a bizarre situation where the U S got some luck, uh, but it did give the U S a chance. Um, and there was a moment, uh, with not that much time left in the game when it was still two one, when, uh, there's a race for the ball with Haji Wright and Noppert, the goalkeeper and Noppert barely wins it. And if he came all the way out of his box yeah, and that was such a moment and fine margins, right? So, could have been potentially 2-2 in that situation. Doesn't happen. Dumfries scores the third pretty soon thereafter. And I think at that point, it was just throw your hands up, essentially, for the U.S. Um, Christian Pulisic in this game, obviously so much discussion about will he play? He's got this pelvic bruise. 
uh, he ends up starting. Um, he didn't, none of these guys answered that many questions after the game. They were all really down. Like Christian especially was just shattered, it seemed like. Um, more by the circumstance that they're out than anything. And if I'd gotten a, another question in, I probably would have asked him just like, how close were you Were you to 100% at the start of this game? Because you can only really find out from him. But the problem is he probably wouldn't have answered or he would have said I was right. fine. Um, but you do wonder. But like, look, I, I, I even was taking notes on this. Like literally the first minute of the game, he goes on a run and challenges right off the kickoff, Noppert, who ends up releasing the ball out of bounds sort of hurriedly. And I, I almost looked at that as, um, as a sign, like Polisic's either trying to show us and or himself that he can be in the thick of things literally from the opening whistle. And I thought it was a good sign. And then two minutes later, he gets this chance. And it did remind me of, of Landon Donovan's chance against Oliver Kahn in the quarterfinal in 2002, very early when the game was still scoreless. Just a That was an amazing save by Khan. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't put an operate save at that level, but it was still a big moment in the game. And, you know, I think if you're Polisic and you look at this World Cup, if you maybe in a few days or in a week, as the disappointment and hurt just starts to, you know, dissipate a little bit, I think he'll look at this World Cup as um, not what he wanted in the end, but certainly not a bad tournament. That's how I, I think, I hope he looks at it. You know, I mean, um, the U S advanced, it got probably as far as most people thought they would. They went out to a, to a good Dutch team. And I do think this will now be viewed in, I think eventually in historical terms as a stepping stone to 2026 and an important one, right? Because you don't get that many opportunities between World Cups at this point, you know, maybe if, if the U.S. can get a Copa America participation, I certainly hope they do in 24. Um, but you're not going to have qualifying. You, know, you need moments like this, you know, th for these young guys to go through together. And now they have that at this level. So I, I think it does set them up better for 26, which is a long ways away, even though it's not quite four years. It's going to be three and a half years. Um and I do think they've created excitement in sort of the U.S. fan base, not just the regular hardcore fans, but new fans, creating new fans for the U.S. national team who are now probably, hopefully, going to want to watch them on a regular basis with their European clubs or MLS teams. And that's all good. You need that to happen. And so I think it, it will only set up these next three and a half years toward a, a U.S. World Cup as like, oh yeah, that U.S. team's actually pretty promising. And I, and I do think that's how a lot of international observers have thought seeing this U.S. team play. They've shared that with me. Um, they got things to fix, obviously. Um, need a number nine. And Germany would say the same thing about their team. There's lots of teams that would say that. There's just fewer number nines, it seems like world-class number line, number nines, not even world-class, like the level below that these days. How do you produce them? That's a, that's a pretty important question. It's a big country. We have a pretty big soccer culture now. Um, that's, you know, one of the main things. And then just, you know, depth of quality. There was a pretty big drop-off when you went into the subs for this U.S. team. And I think in four years, you should have more depth of quality. If you don't, that's a problem. So, I mean, like all of that is important to think about. Um, and I think we've gotten the balance pretty good in this conversation because we're talking about the game, which just ended, which was an important game to talk about, but also looking a little bit at the bigger picture. Yeah, I think, you know, in some ways the end of the World Cup, and maybe we should do a podcast later in the tournament with some more time to think about it, about you know, the, the end of a world, this is the end of a World Cup cycle. For me, national teams are measured in World Cup cycle. So you, I think we have to ask ourselves, what has been achieved from January of 2019 when Greg Berhalter take over to December of 2022, the end of this World Cup cycle? How much has the U.S. grown and progressed? How, how many players have come through? And what is to be learned from what we've seen? So I, I I do think that this idea that 
you know, the, this U.S. team has sort of earned the hearts and minds of the American public, I, I think is it, it always incrementally happens at every World Cup. After 2014, there was an explode. Uh, there, there was a growth, and after 20, every World Cup is big in growth. The you know the the home World Cup will be exponential to what has happened now because 94 was the beginning and I feel like this next one will sort of be in the middle this is the middle of the American growth stage but I I do think going forward there's sort of genuine questions to ask as to why in previous World Cups that depth felt like could could survive a bit more than this group whereas like when the U.S. brought players off their bench it just felt like there, there was only hope in their sort of top 13 or 14. And Stu Holden kept mentioning it. And it's like, why? what happened to those other 12 guys? Like, why did why did it feel like there was no replacement for Anthony Robinson? Why did it feel like, you know, there wasn't enough in central midfield? Were, were there players that were left behind that could have done more? Or is it just what's required to play at this high of a level is more than the remainder of the U.S. player pool is able to provide? And that the U.S., player pool needs to become even deeper than it is now because in order to play at this high of a level you need more players that can play that style of play I would ask you though now that and and there's been um some conjecture I would say from a, a few members of the American media about what's to come for the manager Greg Berhalter uh Tom Boger today said I don't know if it's confirmation or how public the knowledge was that Greg Berhalter's contract was up at the end of this World Cup uh, so where do you think from a coaching standpoint, the, the program goes from here? It's a great question. And I think we'll maybe learn more in the coming days and weeks. So Burhalter was asked in the press conference afterward and said, essentially going to take a few days to digest this, then we'll get back home and start to think about what comes next. And there's different possibilities here, obviously. Um, one Question is, does Greg Berhalter want the job, the U.S. job, for the next four years, having had it for the last few? Um, it's it's an attractive job at this point. It's an even more attractive job because they're the World Cup 26 co-host. There are good coaches on the international market who would want that job. There are not that many qualified American coaches for that job, other than Greg Berhalter and Jesse Marsh. At this point... You know, I'd love to say Jim Curtin, but I, I don't think so. Um, in terms of qualified or want? In terms of want and qualified. Um, okay. And so, like, so, 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 you think Jim Curtin would be a bad appointment? I'm not saying it'd be a bad appointment. I just don't think that. I, I think it might be viewed as a risk. He just doesn't have international experience. Yeah. He's done great in MLS. I mean, Greg Berhalter did well in MLS. Jim Curtin's actually done probably slightly better than uh, than Greg Berhalter did in MLS at this point. Uh, Steve Chirundolo just won an MLS Cup in his first year. So that'd be sort of an Obama-esque in, 20, in 2007, 2008 <laughs> situation. Oh, this guy looks promising. He hasn't been around that long as a coach. But it's also important to keep in mind who's doing the hiring at U.S. Soccer. And for the most part, that's Ernie Stewart who does that. He hired Greg Berhalter. The fact that Ernie Stewart hired Greg Berhalter, I think, increases the likelihood that Greg Berhalter stays for the next four years. Um, However, based on what I've heard, the, the Federation decision will not be solely Ernie Stewart's. Okay, And so then you start to wonder if that includes the board of directors, President Cindy Parlow, Cohn, who actually exercises more power behind the scenes than I think probably most people realize. Um, there's a new CEO, JT Batson. I, so I, I'm curious to see how that plays out. Um, you know, I know there's been some youth national team coaches that Ernie Stewart has wanted to hire who have not, in the end, been hired. Um, that's on a much lower level than senior men's national team coach. But this is a World Cup the U.S. is hosting and the U.S. wants to get this right. My own research, and this is connected to the decision in 2010 after the World Cup to retain Bob Bradley. And I think everyone in the world out there knows I'm a, I'm a Bob Bradley guy. I started covering this, covering him when he was coaching Princeton University in, in 1992 when I was a freshman covering his team for the paper. So I don't hide that. I think Bob Bradley's an amazing coach. But 
the research that I did to sort of get a sense of the historical patterns in world soccer of how does a coach do in his second four-year cycle compared to the first four-year cycle? And the majority of the time, the second cycle does not go as well as the first. And there could be any number of reasons for that. A, a coach sticks with his players too long, doesn't introduce enough new ones. Players per perhaps start to tune out the coach. I think that happened with Jurgen Klinsmann in his second four-year cycle. At least U.S. soccer didn't do what it did with Klinsmann. Do you remember? They gave him an extension in December of 2013, many months before the World Cup even happened. And they didn't do that with Burhalter. I don't think you should almost ever do that. And like, I'm sure that the most likely scenario was, was that Klinsmann and his reps were creating interest from other clubs who supposedly would have wanted to hire him. And then U.S. soccer was forced to, or thought they were forced to do that. Um, but second cycles don't tend to go well. So I, I guess what I'm saying after all of that is the old, what do I think U.S. soccer is going to do? And what do I think they should do? I think U.S. soccer is likely to extend Greg Berhalter for the next four years. I think he's done a pretty good job, um, including at the World Cup overall. What would I do? I don't know if I would hire a coach, extend a coach for a second four-year cycle. That's how I feel. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty dogmatic about that as well. I think that coaches should go for four years. I mean, I guess the the one notable example is the current reigning World Cup winner is France, and that was Didier Deschamps' second World Cup, and he's currently managing his third in charge of the French national team. He's been there for 10 years, and they still play reasonably well, but also, I think I could manage France to the quarterfinal <laughs> of, of, of the World Cup. They're that talented. Uh, but... Um, to me, yeah. So I, I think I think it should be a turnover, and I wonder how big. I, you mentioned sort of those other those other factors. It's not just Ernie Stewart's decision. If it were just Ernie Stewart's decision, it's funny because it's always referenced as Jay Berhalter being involved in the organization as the reason why Greg got the job, as opposed to Ernie Stewart just wanted to hire Greg. Like he likes Greg. He 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 thinks Greg can implement the style of play that Ernie's you know has set forward for the organization. I think that was sort of a personal choice that the person in charge of the program made, which that's what you put him in charge for. But if you're mentioning those sort of external factors of a CEO getting involved and the federation president getting involved and all that, it would sort of, to me, maybe lend the notion of, well, do you try and go hire a big name or someone who's got like a, you know, like a big figure to come in and, and try and add lead the World Cup into a home World Cup and they try and go recruit sort of a big coach that can do that. I'm honestly kind of surprised that Qatar didn't do that uh, going into this World Cup. But um, if, you go, if you're looking for available coaches, I, I was talking today uh, with Mike Ryan about this. Yogi Luff, I think, is one of them. I know that, uh, you know, like the, the language barrier could be something. I, was, I actually tossed out the idea of what if it were Gareth Southgate um, hmm. because... Uh, he doesn't seem like someone who's going from managing England to managing a, in the Premier League at a big job. So unless England intend to carry on with him, maybe he'll be looking for another job in international management. It might not be a terrible fit. Um, if you're looking outside of the American circle, of course, um, Jesse Marsh is probably the first call you make and you make him say no. Um, and I don't know, given his current management of a Premier League club, whether he would. I, I, it's a difficult search. If I if I were sort of leading a search firm, I'd really have to think pretty far and wide as to who the the ideas would be. Honestly, if it weren't for the fact that he is currently going through a pretty serious health issue, I might investigate bringing in Louis Van Hall on after <laughs> after the performance that he's put in with this Dutch national team. So, I mean, you have to go through available coaches. Whether you think you can get a coach who's currently in a club job to leave that club job to go manage your national team. Uh, whether you want to pull from the American circle, whether you want to go international again, uh, th there's sort of big philosophical questions out of what you want out of the position before you start trying to identify names. All that is makes total sense to me. You're going to have a you know some coaches who are available after this World Cup now after coaching teams in this World Cup, but I'm thinking of guys who are not exactly. There's a reason why they just lost their jobs. So Roberto Martinez, Tata Martino. Uh, U.S. Soccer didn't even bother to interview Martino uh, when they hired Burhalter, so I don't think that will happen. Um, and Roberto is coming off a pretty dismal World Cup with Belgium, where they just did not look good at all. Um, 
So I don't know if he would be someone to pursue. I think he might have interest in that gig. Um, I, I, I do think you just got, you do have to call Jesse. I think you need to at least talk to him and find out if he's interested. It, you know, to not do that seems like malpractice. Um, and then you never know who out there might be interested in the job. I mean, there were like until a couple of years ago, there were people who legitimately thought Pep Guardiola had a good shot to be the U.S. coach for 26. Um, dinners were had between Sunil Gulati and Pep Guardiola. So this is pre really. Oh yeah, this is like 20. This is pre 2017. Um, wow. And so Pep was interested. I he just signed an extension with Man City. So I, yeah. I don't think he is now, but I, I, as, as cool as that sounds, I can't imagine a job Pep Guardiola is less suited to than managing a <laughs> national team. I think he would lose his mind in between international windows. I think he probably would, but he had that year long sabbatical where he lived in New York. I think he really enjoyed it. it it's almost like a sabbatical to be an international manager for most of those four years. Um, and so he could live in New York and coach a little U.S. national team on the side. And I think that that was attractive to him. I still think it's more likely that Pep will coach, if he coaches internationally, like Spain at some point. Yeah. Um, but you never know who out there might be a prominent name. And you mentioned Yogi Love. Like, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't think that, I, I, I feel like his greatest moments are behind him. Um, and so, and I also don't know if he'd want the U S job, but it's an, it's an interesting thing to at least ask about. I remember during the whole Burhalter process, you know, Julian Lopetegui, who had coached Spain, like contacted U S soccer saying he was interested and U S soccer certainly wouldn't have known unless he did that. And they said, we're not interested U S soccer. Um, that was my whole issue with the process to hire Burhalter was like U.S. soccer didn't even bother to interview anybody essentially other than uh, Oscar Pereja. Even at the time when they hired Burhalter, I was like, Burhalter may be the right choice in the end, but the process that landed on him could have gone better. I, I sort of laughed when, um, uh, what was it? Cindy Parlo Cohn interviewed a lot of people for the CEO job. And it struck me as being very different from the, the process Ernie Stewart had to land on Burhalter, where he interviewed almost nobody. Um, so I do wonder how all of that's going to process. It's going to be an intriguing few weeks. I still land on, I think it's most likely that Greg Burhalter extends with U.S. soccer. Okay. And I, I, I wouldn't mind. I, I imagine when that tweet goes out, I'm I'm just sort of envisioning me having to log off Twitter for that day, oh, uh, because yes, you will. yeah, because I I will I will be very annoyed. Again, I don't think that he got every decision right at this World Cup. No manager does, but in the overall, his objective was to lead the U.S. on a more ambitious path on the globe's biggest stage for the game. And I don't like I don't have any I don't have any qualms about how they went about playing that they, they wanted to use the ball. They went for it. And yeah, they left themselves open on the flanks. And Louis Van Hall picked it out and they turned it into a goal and two assists for Denzel Dumfries today. But in the overall, when you see that team go toe-to-toe against England and go at the Netherlands and you know look pretty comfortable against Iran, look pretty comfortable against Wales, I think they've achieved a level in terms of how they play that is above any other American team. And that is a large part to do with the players and their personal development yep. and the level that they're playing at and this sort of incredible lightning in the bottle the U.S. has found that, you know, eight guys have sort of come to come online at the same time that can offer the U.S. improved qualities. And maybe Jurgen Klinsmann would have eventually done this with this group of players or Bruce Arena could have done this with this group of players. But Greg Berhalter did it. And so he deserves the credit for having done it. And I enjoyed watching the U.S. at this World Cup. But... My my feeling is the same as yours. I just think four years is a very long time to be in one job in this sport. And you either, I think Yogi Love, particularly in the in his last cycle, 
reinvented himself maybe one too many times. He's like, get rid of all the old Bayern Munich guys and let's start doing our, uh, you know, let, let's let's bring about regime change. And then sheepishly went back to them just before the World Cup. Like you, you overthink it because you're sort of in this job. Like, do I reinvent? Do I stick? And as opposed to just having a new voice come in and present a vision and go and execute it. So that's always my feeling is just have a new person come in, execute a vision and say, we like what Berhalter was doing and this person will allow us to progress it or continue to do it more regularly or better, or we have a different vision for how we want to play and let's execute that. But I, I think that, you know, it's probably time, not because I think he's done a bad job or, des- or deserves to get fired, but just because I think these things are sick are cyclical and we're at the end of the cycle. So it's time for a new cycle. And maybe Berhalter gets a nice club job somewhere and just is like, okay, I enjoyed this gig, my contract's up, happy trails. It's possible. Um, but we will see. Uh, for listeners, we're going to conti- going to continue, obviously, having these podcast episodes every other day during the rest of the World Cup, not just stopping because the U.S. is out, but uh, looking forward to those. Really enjoyed that discussion. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Katarina Macario. Big thanks to Adidas for helping set up today's interview. We've got a good one today. Our guest is with me here in Doha, and she has been rehabbing here for a little while now. Katerina Macario is working her way back to the U.S. women's national team and her club, Lyon, after suffering an ACL injury in June. She's also attending some of the World Cup games, and we're recording this on Saturday, just a couple hours before the USA-Netherlands game. Kat, it is great to see you again. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me. Um, First question, how are you? I'm doing well, yeah. Thank you. Just rehabbing away, so um, yeah, just hoping to get back on the field as soon as possible. And what led to you coming to Doha for your rehab, and how much time have you spent here? Um, I've been here for about two months now, and I'm here because I'm doing rehabilitation at Aspatar, which is one of the best rehab centers in the world, actually. Um, And yeah, I just wanted to, you know, be treated by the best and um yeah you know i have my my goals of going to the world cup and yeah i just want to make sure that i'm 100 percent. and yeah so just figured that here would be the best place to to get back to the best version of myself i mean the facilities here are incredible I, i've taken a tour of them before so i totally understand why you're here doing this um how many games how many world cup games have you attended what's it been like <laughs> uh, that's a good question um, thankfully, Adidas has been very kind to me since they know that I was already here. So, um, yeah, I've just been going to about like uh, one game per day or so. Just to, I've never been to a World Cup before, and this was a very once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, obviously, because I'm supposed to be playing instead of being injured and being here. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, it just happened that the World Cup was here, so we're, we're able to make it happen. How many U.S. games? How many Brazil games? Um, all of the U.S. games, um, and all of the Brazil games except one. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Nice. That's amazing. I, I love the World Cup. It's such a cool event. Um, what is your sense of the U.S. men's team in this tournament? Oh, they've been doing well so far. I think. Yeah, I think they're honestly they've been. They're such a young team. Like you know, like they've really. I think they were really making the nation proud. I hope so. I mean, um, even, you know, like seeing them play against England, I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit nervous at first. <laughs> Wasn't sure how that was going to go, but they were. They really went toe-to-toe. And, I mean, I feel like we even look like the better team. Um, so, yeah, it's been wonderful to see them and see all the, like, see them really rise to the occasion. So I'm really hoping that they'll, they'll keep doing that today. Yeah, we're recording this right before the game. Yeah, literally. It's going to come out, like, right after the game. Yeah. So we're uh, tense here waiting for that game to start. I know. We have a good chance. We have a good chance. <laughs> I think there's a chance, right. Yeah, for um, sure. So this time off from playing for the U.S. national team in Lyon, I know it's not what you wanted, mm-hmm. but how have you tried to approach these last six months? Yeah, um... It's been five months since my surgery, actually. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, like you said, it's definitely not what I wanted, but um, you know, it's, um, things happen. Injuries are part of, of football. And yeah, I'm just kind of taking it 
one day at a time and just knowing that, you know, like this would make me a better player, this would make me a better person. And, you know, um, I feel like injuries really help you, you know, kind of like almost get grounded in a way and just knowing that's like, um, okay, I'm not just like a football player, you know, and um, I have way more to life than just football. And so it's been very eye-opening actually. And I wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't have it any other way. Are there any human things that you're doing during this period that maybe you weren't doing as much of before? Yeah, honestly, I have not been, I've honestly never been really able to travel. And Mm -hmm. this has been really cool, a really cool period, you know, just to do that, like a few weekends here and there, uh, just because, you know, like when you're playing, you know, like even if you have like one or two days off, you know, like you have to think about the next week and like recovery and things like that. But this time I was like, you know what, I'm going to treat myself and I'm going to go on a trip. You know, Um, I've been able to spend more time with my dad, which has been cool. Um, Yeah, just kind of like just reading more books and, you know, just like really practicing like more mindfulness. And it's been really cool. Yeah, just like kind of getting more in touch with myself and like obviously connecting more more with my friends, which sometimes I don't necessarily get the opportunity to. Um, And yeah, just getting to know the the world a little bit better. That's really interesting. That's cool. Thanks for sharing. Um, When are you hoping to be back on the field? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I would love to be back around like March. Yeah, we'll see. March, April. Like, obviously, it depends. Like, there is no no set uh, deadline. You know, like no set timeline. And I mean, um, you know, like sometimes, you know, unfortunately with injuries, you have some good days, you have some off days. Uh, good weeks, off weeks, so it just kind of just depends. And again, I'm thankful that I'm here at the best place in the world, and so I know that I'm at the best hands. Um, I'm in good hands, and so yeah, I'll just again, I'm itching to to be back with the team again, but I just want to do it as safely as possible. So taking my time. No, it makes sense. Um, the U.S. women's team has had. They won their last game. They have had an extremely rare, epically rare three-game losing streak recently against top European teams, England, Spain, Germany. What was it like for you watching those games? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think, kind of like what every fan was feeling. That was like, whoa, what's going on, you know? But um, again, I feel like the one thing that, you know, you get with the U.S. is that they're... They have a crazy mentality and they'll always bounce back and I was so thankful to be able to see that, you know, in the fourth match. Um, again, like, I think the team lacks experience right now. Obviously, we have a lot of young players and first and foremost, first and foremost I wish that I was there to be getting that experience and obviously be with the team and help them as much as I can. Um, but also, I think it's a good, it's a good thing. It's like a, it's a good wake up call. It's a good, you know, like experience to have, and it's better to happen now than later. And so, you know, like you know, you have to make the adjustments, and yeah, just see, get back to the winning ways in the the standard that the U.S. team has. And yeah, sometimes that takes a couple losses, but after all, I think this will set us up in a in a good path for 2023. The first U.S. game at the Women's World Cup is July 22nd. Not that many months away, actually. I know, uh, yeah. Seven months from now. Are, mm-hmm. you, I mean, are you still hoping to make a big impact with U.S. at the World Cup? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, I think not just individually, but collectively, you know, you'd say, like, of course, we want to win again. Um, not just that, but we want to win and play well, you know, and... Um, whether it be, you know, against Vietnam, Netherlands, whatever, just the, the whole tournament, it's something, it's a great opportunity to show, you know, like, who we are, uh, not only individually, but also collectively, you know, and I think it's been really cool just to see the different nations uh, stepping up in their investments, you know, just stepping up in how they're growing the women's game, and it's been, it's been really cool and exciting to, to be a part of, so, yeah, um, I'm super excited for Australia and New Zealand. I mean, when you go to these U.S. games and you feel the tension in the stands, does it make you think about what it might be like to experience? Obviously, you, you wouldn't be a fan at the Women's mm-hmm. World Cup. You would be on the field. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Yeah. 
honestly, there are times when I, I hear the, the anthem and I almost feel like crying, like just because it's like a... Or, you know, just get, I just get like a little bit emotional, yeah, you know, just the fact that's like you get to represent your country in such a big stage and that's so special. And so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be different for sure. And like walking onto the fields, hopefully um, in 2023, but it's something that I've been looking forward to my whole life. And yeah, I hope to do it at a, the best um, when, whenever I'm feeling at my best possible self. Yeah. Um. What sort of conversations have you had with the U.S. coach, Vlako Andonovsky? Yeah, I know he's here, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Um, I'll yeah, track him well, down. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's here. Um, he's doing some recruitment um, <laughs> to help with the, the men's team, obviously. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, no, we just catch up here and there, obviously, you know, like keeping him updated on my, on my injuries and, like, whatnot. But, yeah, kind of just talking... You know, like we talked a little bit about the games and things like that, um, like the, that the games that the U.S. has recently. And, yeah, I mean, he's just a great guy, honestly. Overall, like uh, we just talk like, um, you know, kind of like human to human. And, yeah. you know, like he doesn't um, makes you feel comfortable, which is something that like um, you don't find in every coach, honestly. And um, it's something that I really appreciate. Um, just because, you know, like he always, he trusts you, like no matter what, he tries to get the best out of his players. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, we'll catch up a little bit more later, but nice. yeah, he, uh, it's been good to, it's been good to see him here and, yeah. you know, obviously we're supporting the U.S. and hoping that they go as far as possible, but also, you know, just we, in the back of our minds, we, we both know, okay, like we're... You know, like we enjoy watching football, but mm. also we have work to do for 2023. Yeah, most definitely. A couple more questions here with Katarina Macario. Appreciate your time. Um, <laughs> you know, we have seen superstars in the women's game have ACL injuries in the last year. And it's to experience that, I can only imagine. But like you, Alexia Pateas, Beth Mead recently mm. with England. Do you ever wonder what's going on with that? Why it's yeah, happening? I mean, <laughs> I think it's first. I mean, I'm no scientific expert or anything by that, but I think first of all, women are already more predisposed to having, you know, like ACL injuries. I think something with the the hips, okay, or like why not? I don't know. Again, no, I'm not I understand. An expert, I put you in a tough spot but, here. You know, um, and also, you know, like. We have um, periods and things like that, you know, just like different things that really puts you, you know, that can increase your rate of injury, um, your likelihood to get injured. And I just think that there's a big, big lack of research right now in the women's field, you know, just really focusing on women's players and everything that's done is generally you know, concentrated on males and it's like, okay, but we're completely different people, you know? And so I think, you know, now that we're playing more intense games, you know, obviously the demand is higher. And I think that, you know, maybe the, re the research is not followed and same with the, you know, like medical field. I don't think that, you know, some clubs are necessarily doing everything that they can to, you know, help with the prevention side of injuries and like whatnot. And unfortunately we are seeing this a lot right now. And I hope that, yeah, I mean, it's just really unfortunate, but I, I hope that, you know, like we'll come to a day that's like, we'll put, we'll put this past behind us, but. I hope sports yeah, science hears this and, and makes some I progress hope so too. Yeah, on yeah. this, because I think it's important for the growth of women's sure. sports. And until your injury happened in June, it had been really a dream season for you with Leon. You know, you took back the Champions League title from Barcelona, the league title from PSG. You personally were number nine and the highest American in the voting for the Ballon d'Or award. It's funny because the story I wrote about you in January, we had a, an artist do a, a, a picture of you mm -hmm. at the start of it. And we had in the artwork you wearing a shirt that said like, or you're holding up a shirt that said Ballon d'Or 24, a question mm. mark. And it made <laughs> me think we, we, like we were too conservative in, mm. in saying 24. Oh my gosh. Um, but congratulations Thank on, on Thank that. So That's much. a real honor. Um, when you look back on that season, how would you describe it? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous season. It kind of went by in a blink of an eye, not going to lie. Um, obviously, it was like my first professional season, my first full season. And I'm just so glad that, you know, like we were able to, you know, just like get the Champions League and get back the, the trophy as well. And obviously, individually, it wasn't like not bad. So I am, I am very, very thrilled just because, you know, in the beginning, it was definitely tough uh, making the, the transition to professional football. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy. Um, obviously, at the end, um, I had my injury, but it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a tremendous year. I wouldn't change anything about it. Um, and yeah, I just hope that this is only the beginning and that we'll keep getting better and better. And obviously, I have my eyes set for the World Cup. So, yeah. We are only 28 days away from New Year's Eve parties. It's weird to be at a World Cup in December. I'm wrapping know, my mind yeah. around it. Doesn't it doesn't even feel like December. Um, that's a time when people think about the year ahead. What will you be thinking about when the clock hits midnight on New Year's Eve? Well, I will be thinking about you know just getting as healthy as possible um as quick as possible but as safe as possible um and just doing absolutely everything i can in order to help the united states win another world cup katarina macario is hard at work to get back on the field for the u.s women's national team and leon cat thanks for coming on the show yeah thank you always a pleasure grant Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Katarina Macario as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>